0: Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for this little bit of time that you've carved away from our schedules. We can come together, fellowship, and enjoy each other's company. But more than that, Lord, to study your word and understand the message that you have for us. Please bless our time together now. Please bless the words that are presented and the ideas that are conveyed. Help them to be your words and your message tonight. And speak not to us in a general sense, but Lord, I would ask that very specifically you would send your Holy Spirit this evening to knock on our heart's door and help each one of us to let the Holy Spirit in, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back to the book of Revelation, always going to be beginning in Revelation. That's our theme for the whole presentation, the book of Revelation, and right in the heart of Revelation, as we've been covering the last several evenings is this background story to why there's even a problem at all. The story starts in Revelation chapter 12, and it starts in verse 7. And we'll go right through a quick review of what we've been studying the previous nights, and we'll come to the beginning of tonight's message. Revelation chapter 12, starting with verse 7. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 1182. 1182. Verse 7. And war broke out where? In heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Verse 9. So the great dragon was what? Cast out. That serpent of old called whom? The devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Two nights ago, those verses were the burden of our message, demonstrating that that war in heaven was not a war of weapons, but a war of words. And Satan and his other angels who went along with him lost their place in heaven, but God did not destroy them immediately because what God could see in them, the other beings needed an opportunity to see demonstrated. Right. So we go on to verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been, what? Cast down. And we know clearly that Jesus said, looking at his coming death, he said, Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. What we're seeing in verse 10 is the victory that Jesus attained on the cross, lived a sinless life, gave a sacrificial death, and in so doing uprooted every argument that Satan had made against God and his ways. God demonstrated through the person of Jesus that he was loved, that he was selfless, that he was sacrificing. And in the same act, Satan revealed himself as a murderer. Jesus has said he was a liar and murderer from the beginning, and Calvary proved he was right. And in so doing, he was cast out, not physically from the courts of heaven, but out of the sympathies of those who gazed at him and considered him. But now we go on to verse 11. What's the next step in this process? And they, now pause right here, who are they? Well, just go back and take a look now at verse 10. Again, reading verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of whom? Our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down, and they overcame him. This is speaking of the brethren. These are the people that Jesus died for, apparently in verse 11, now overcome Satan, through what power? By the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Let's go to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, Luke chapter 19. As we pointed out before, Jesus' mission, first and foremost, as it says in Scripture, was to destroy the works of the devil. He came here to end what had started up there. But now I'm going to ask you a question for thought. Hopefully all questions you're thinking about, okay? But this one in particular. If Christ's only mission was to demonstrate the character of God that he truly is love, and to wipe away all the accusations of Satan, and in fact prove that Satan is the one who's the enemy, and that he has sinned and he deserves to die, if that were the only mission of Jesus in coming to this earth, why didn't the moment Jesus died, that perfect sacrifice, that sinless death, why didn't Satan get killed too? Why 2,000 years after the cross are we still here? I mean, if the whole point was to destroy the works of the devil to demonstrate that he's a liar and a murderer and the cross of Calvary did that very thing. Why didn't Satan and his evil host meet their end at the same time? Boom. (laughs) Okay, well let's take a look at Scripture. I believe that there was more to Christ's mission than merely destroying Satan. Chapter 19, the book of Luke, verse 10. Jesus, in healing this man spiritually, this man Zacchaeus, right, who comes to conversion, comes to repentance, and gets right with the Lord. We'll start with verse 9. Luke chapter 19, verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today, what? Salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. And notice what he says. For the Son of Man has come to do what? Seek and to save that which was lost. Notice that the plan of God for Jesus' mission here was not merely the destruction of Satan, but it's the redemption of sinners which all of us should be thankful for, by the way. (laughs) Because if God destroyed sin and sinners the moment Jesus died on the cross, we're all done, right? But apparently it's not called the plan of destruction, it's called the plan of salvation. In order for something to be complete, something has to be saved. And the only way a plan of salvation can be finished is if something at the very end of it comes out saved. Something is redeemed. Something is bought back. Now this adds a whole layer of intrigue, I believe. But let's look at our fill-in-the-blanks for tonight. Study guide number five, the first fill-in-the-blanks. God's plan involved not just the destruction of Satan, but the saving of the lost. give you time to get that, God's plan involved not just the destruction of Satan, but the saving of the lost. Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Now, this now takes the cross and starts to apply it to us. We know that Jesus' death on the cross vindicated the character of God before the onlooking universe. But friends, what does it do for us individually? It's not just a big theory. There's practical application, and that's the burden of tonight's message. What does the cross do for us? It brings us to the first of our two big problems. The first problem that every person has when it comes to our relationship with God is our past. Our past. Everything we've done up until this moment, not all of it has been good. You don't have to say amen. I know. Right? The Bible tells me that. and You don't have to tell on me. The Bible tells me about this. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 59. What is our first big problem when it comes to the, uh, a relationship with God? Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. Page 716 in your pew Bible. Scripture says, but your iniquities have what? Separated you from your God. Originally, if you look, Adam was created in the image of God, and in the cool of the day, the Lord God would come down and commune with him face to face. But now we can't have that. Remember, Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. He says, I can show you my goodness, but you can't see the raw unveiled me, right? What's the problem? Well, we've all sinned. Again, Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. We have a sin problem, and every one of us has it. Go to the New Testament, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. page 1088 in your pew bibles romans chapter 5 starting with verse 12 what does the scripture record for our admonition therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all what sin we have all sinned and therefore death is the sentence for every one of us It's very simple, very simple. Stay in the book of Romans, just go back to chapter 3. Go back a page in your pew Bible there. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. I don't know if language can be any clearer, but it leaves no, what they call, wiggle room. (laughs) Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. In fact, let's all read it together, shall we? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of God. The glory of God, if you recall, being his character, his goodness, who he is. And according to Scripture, how many of us have missed that mark? All. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's go back to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 64. Page 721. As you're finding that, let me tell you something interesting. I I meet people, and you ask them, if the Lord were to come tonight, would you be ready to meet him? And people would say, oh, absolutely. And I ask, why do you have such confidence? Which, I mean, it's great that you're confident, but where do you find this assurance? What gives you this such confidence? And they'll say things like, I'm a good person. Or, I don't do things too bad. Or, I live a pretty decent life. I'm a good guy. I'm a good, I'm a good person. Now, good and bad are relative terms, yes? Right? Which begs the question, good compared to what? Now, notice carefully, I bring that up, because notice what the, the prophet Isaiah says about our goodness, Isaiah chapter 64, go to verse 6. But we all, sounds like the Apostle Paul from the book of Romans, doesn't it? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Notice what it says here. But we all like an unclean, are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like what? Now notice carefully, it didn't say all of our unrighteousness is filthy rags, but all of our righteousness What we think is good from our estimation, from our vantage point, from our perspective, we're good. But compared to the all-surpassing glory of God, we fall short. It says, for we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. We all have this problem, and it's worse than we think it is. By the way, I don't want to leave you on a negative note, okay? But we all have this problem, and it's worse than we think it is. Let's go back to the New Testament now. Romans chapter 6. Notice the internal consistency between Old and New Testament when it comes to our sin problem, when it comes to every issue. God's Word is so consistent. And notice Romans chapter 6 again. Now verse 23, page 1089 in your pew Bible. Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But, here comes that good news, the gift of God is eternal life. How do we get it? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Look at the way that he uses language here, the Apostle Paul. He says the wages of sin is death. What's the difference between wages and a gift? Wages you earn. You do a thing and you get out what you put in. You put in a day's work and you get the dollar value of that in return. Those are your wages. And apparently every one of us has earned death because we have worked iniquity. But in contrast to that, it says, but the gift of God is eternal life. So there's death on one hand, life on the other, wages on one hand. But what's this thing over here called? It's a gift. Now, if, let me just give you this. If you go out and work a hard day's work, make your dollar. It's a hard economy. <laughs> All day you weren't a dollar, right? Then you go spend that dollar to get you something nice. Did you get a gift? No, you just bought something, right? You took your wages and spent it. But the gift of God is not something you cash in what you did on, it's something He gives you as a gift. Every one of us has earned the death sentence, but Christ offers life. Now, from our perspective, that sounds fantastic. Woohoo! Which it is, fantastic. But now think about it from this universal conflict perspective that we've been talking about. Think about this for a moment. How can God be fair and just all of a sudden, I know you've earned death, but don't worry about it, I'll just give you life. No problem. Well, wait a minute, where's this God of justice? Where's this God of fairness? Everybody just give free pass? Hmm. How does it actually work? Well, let's go take a look at this. Go to the book of Zechariah. Perhaps no better example of how this transaction between life and death, between the wages and the gift, is illustrated in Scripture than the book of Zechariah. That's going to be page 919 in your pew Bible. Chapter 3. Here Zechariah, the prophet, is shown a vision in which Joshua, the high priest, which from the Hebrew economy's perspective, from ancient Israel's perspective, there is no one on earth holier than the high priest, right? The head of the house, really solid guy. The priest in the temple, really solid guy. But the high priest, there's only one of those. And from, have, from earth's perspective, that's as holy as you can get. At least that office is supposed to represent the holiness of God, right? And here we have Joshua, the high priest. Well, let's just read verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to oppose him. Some versions say to accuse him. As we saw in Revelation chapter 12, the accuser of our brethren. So here it is, Zechariah's in vision, he sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, but it's not just Joshua, and it's not just the Lord's representative, it's also Satan. And what is Satan's role in this situation? What is Satan there to do? To oppose or to accuse whom? Joshua, the high priest, Right? So here he is standing before the Lord, you can imagine yourself at this moment, standing before the Lord on the day of judgment, and you've got a prosecutor over here who's saying, no, you can't, this isn't fair, look at him, and he starts opposing you, accusing you, laying out all the record of your transgressions. Now I'm not going to ask you personally, but if Satan were to read a list of your transgressions, would he have anything to read? Hmm. Even if you're a high priest, even if you're a Christian, even if you're a good person, even if you're the minister in the pulpit, according to Scripture, all have sinned. And here he's reading off the sins, opposing, accusing the high priest. And notice what God does. Verse 2 And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this, speaking of Joshua, not a brand plucked from the fire? Now what's interesting, the Lord does not stand up and say, He has not sinned. Apparently neither Satan or the Lord or even Joshua are contesting any of the charges. He reads off, This, and this, and this, and Joshua's like, yep. And even the Lord, yep, yep. This is an important point, folks. When it comes to our sin problem, the Lord doesn't just close his eyes, close his ears, and la, 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 I can't see it, I don't hear it, I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist. Does the Lord know about your record of wrongs? Absolutely. Absolutely. But with that full knowledge, he still rebukes Satan and says, I'm taking this one out of the fire. And we think, good, amen. But the question still remains, how is that fair? Can you just, you know, spill some white out over the record and pretend it's not there? Let's keep reading. Now, verse 3, Joshua was clothed with what kind of garments? Filthy garments. Now, this is important. Joshua's the high priest. The high priests have special garments that were crafted for holiness and for beauty to be a glory to God and honor to his name. Yet according to this, he's standing in filthy garments. Remember the book of Isaiah says that even our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And given that list that Satan's read off there, his rags are filthy. But it goes on to say, Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he, that is the angel of the Lord, answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your what? Iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes." He's going to change his clothes. And the one garment represents all of his filthiness, his unrighteousness. The other garment represents holiness and purity and a clean, fresh start. New, clean clothes. By the way, there's a deeper lesson in here, and I'll just pause for a second to say it. Notice that the Lord doesn't cover the filthy clothes. When the Lord dresses you, he doesn't do it in layers, right? He takes off the one and you stand there in your shameful nakedness before the Lord and then he covers you with something new. I'll cut to the chase on this and we'll come back to it in a few minutes, but too many of us want to put on Christ while at the same time leaving our unrighteousness underneath. Christ says, no, 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 it's one or the other. I'll remove this, and in its place give you this. But I'm not dressing you in layers. You have to stand before the Lord honest, open. Here I am, Lord. But Joshua does that. And the Lord takes off his filthy garments, dresses him in clean robes, And that sounds very good to us. But let's go back to our worksheet now and think this through. Satan's basic argument has been, and I would imagine he's got some pretty strong scripture to back him up. By the way, does Satan ever attack with scripture? Absolutely. He's going to use anything he can to twist and persuade and to tug and to bend. He came at Jesus himself with scripture in the wilderness, did he not? And he could probably put together a very good case as to why all who sinned should die. And he could say, according to your word, Lord, it's your law that says the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned. So I'm here to say, you be fair. Satan's basic argument, they've all sinned, and your law says the wages of sin is death. God could not ignore our sin. Sin had to be dealt with just as the law required. With what? Death. Something has to die. But notice what the plan of God is right here in our fill in the blank. While sin, as we saw in Isaiah chapter 59, as sin separates people from their God, God's plan is to separate people from their sin. Notice this again. While sin separates people from God, God separates people from their sins. Now, sometimes in our lives, we have literal physical clothing. Hopefully, every day, we all have physical clothing on, right? And at the end of the day, or after you've been in some sort of muddy incident or something, you get filthy clothes. And if you're anything like my son, or sometimes me, ashamedly enough, when you want to change clothes, you take off the old clothes, and what do you do with them? You just throw them on the ground, right? And then you put on nice, clean clothes. But let me ask you a question. With the spiritual robes of filthiness and sin... Did God take them off of Zechariah, I mean off of Joshua the high priest, put on new clothes, and then take those old clothes and be like, oh, well, never mind, just throw them on the ground. No. Because Satan was right about this. Your law says the wages of sin is death. Somebody has to die for those sins. You take them off of Joshua, but in taking them off, you have to put them on to someone else. Go to the book of Isaiah again. Isaiah this time, chapter 53. And notice what God does with our filthy garments. Isaiah chapter 53. One of the most beautiful chapters in all of Scripture. We'll we'll go to verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, we'll start with verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, the prophet writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But notice verse 5. He was wounded for what? Our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, tell me if this doesn't sound like all the things we've read so far. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God didn't just take those filthy garments and clump them up and throw them on the floor. He laid them on his own son, Jesus. And Satan was right. Something had to die. God's law couldn't be changed. It had to be fulfilled. Christ, by the way, when he came to this earth, said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. I am that one that the law points to. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Turn to the right, still in Isaiah. Good time to go to chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61, starting with verse 10. Our re- what is our response to this? I will greatly, what? Rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has, what? Clothed me with, what? Garments of salvation. So, garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As the bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a, broom, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, he says, now we celebrate, now we rejoice in this new commitment like a bride and groom and they put on their best apparel. Christ has clothed us in the absolute best apparel there can be, the robe of righteousness that we did not earn, but he gives it to us as a gift. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus we read in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Go to verse 17, page 1114 in your pew Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And how is that made possible? Go down to verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin, what are the next two words? For us, in our place. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the what? The righteousness of God in him. The Bible talks about this great exchange. Of course, the most famous passage of all, John chapter 3 and verse 16, page 1027 in your pew Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice the contrast. All have sinned, but in Christ, whoever believes doesn't have to pay that penalty, but they can receive the gift. It's a beautiful concept. First John chapter 1 and verse 9. How do we accept this gift? How do we come across this robe of righteousness? How do we give up our robe and take on his robe? 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Apparently, provision has, made, has been made through Christ for whoever wants it to start fresh, to start clean, to take that old record of those past sins, put them onto Jesus Christ, and he who knew no sin, will be sin for us and pay in himself the penalty that we deserve. The gift of God is eternal life. Now, most presentations of the gospel will end at this point, And they'll make an appeal and say, brother, sister, if you want to give your life to Christ, if you want to confess your sins, and trust me, we're going to be having an appeal tonight. I want to give you that opportunity but I believe that many times we are trying to spend only one half of the coin. Because one of our big problems is our past, but there's a second problem that we have. What do you think that is? Future. Okay, great. Now we've got a clean start, a new fresh step, a set of clothes, a robe of righteousness. But going forward... Don't I just automatically make that dirty just by stepping into it? Is there any way to keep it clean? Friends, I believe that many, many people love the promise of pardon, but they never even consider that there's an equal promise of power that goes along with it. Is it possible that God wants to actually make you good and not just? call you good? Let's see what Scripture says about it. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Jesus speaking of his own return. Page 1042 in your pew Bible. John chapter 14, starting with verse 1. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for whom? For you. Now, is God talking to angels here or is he talking to people here? To people. He's talking to us, right? He says, I go to make a way for you to go there too. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, every one of us, a few of us actually said amen, and hopefully the rest of us were at least thinking it. This is Jesus Christ standing here saying, there's a place for you, I'm going to go make sure that you can get in, and I'm going to come back and bring you to myself, because where I am, I want you to be. And from our perspective, that's fantastic. Time out. Think about it from those onlooking angels' perspective. Is having you and me come back there such good news to them? You're like, I never thought about it. I'm just trying to get into heaven, you know? But they're like, it's, it's one thing to talk about getting into heaven, but would you actually fit in if he brought you there? I mean, think about it. If there were for 4,000 years some level of sympathy even for the devil and his arguments when finally the day came when Jesus stretched forth his arms on Calvary and demonstrated that yes, indeed, Satan was a liar and a murderer and should be ended. You can imagine sanctified imagination, if you will. Gabriel, I would use another angel's name, but that's the only one that I know. The only one that's told to us in Scripture. But Gabriel walks with God and says, God... I finally see what you saw from the very beginning. You were right to kick him out. You were right that he should die. I saw what he did it to Jesus, and if he let him have his way in this universe, we'd be all over. For the good of the universe, not that you needed my permission, <laughs> but you absolutely have my consent. Satan should die. Now imagine God saying, Whew, good. I'm glad that you see what I've seen all along. It says, now we're going to move to phase two. And Gabriel's like, what do you mean phase two? We're, we're ready to destroy Satan. We're ready to have this universe pure again. He's like, wait, 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 wait. But it's not called the plan of destruction. It's called the plan of salvation. I'm now going to take some of his followers and bring him right back here. And I would imagine, much like the first time that God said that Lucifer had to die, and they were like, well, why? We haven't seen anything. Now the onlooking angels are looking at us when God says they should live. And he said, why? I haven't seen anything. Is it possible that the same way that those onlooking angels needed to see a reason why Satan should die, now they need a reason to see why any of us should live? I mean, it's a logical question. If you brought them back here, I wish I knew more names. I'd pick on names right now. (laughs) But I'll just use my own. Gabriel says, you're going to bring Cameron DeVasier here forever. God's like, yeah. In fact, I'm going to put him in the mansion right next door to you. And he's thinking about the property values, you know, and he's it's like, oh, what are we doing? How is this a good plan? I mean, does Gabriel still trust God? Yes. Does he understand his plan yet? No. From our perspective, there's a place for you, brother. I'm going to bring you back to myself. We're sitting there. yee From heaven's perspective, they're like, ooh, slow down. Slow down. How in the world can this work? Let's go to our fill-in-the-blanks here. Under problem number two is our future. Sure, Christ can take care of our past, call us good, wipe the slate clean, give us a robe of righteousness, but what security do we have going forward that anything's going to change? Again, right after John chapter 14, look at our check marks there. We may be excited about going to heaven, but the angels have some legitimate questions, do they not? We may be excited about going to heaven, but the angels have some legitimate questions. And apparently, and we'll demonstrate this from Scripture, angels no longer ask why should Satan die. But they do wonder why any of us should what? Live. How, God, can it be in your plan to bring them back here? Now, with that in mind, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 8. The Apostle Paul sometimes wrote long sentences, okay? So we're going to break this one down a little bit. I want you to see exactly what he's saying. It'll be easy to think he's saying something else, but I want you to see right from your Bible. Whatever Bible you brought, it says the same thing. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to start with verse 8. Paul is giving his job description, and he says, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. He's very humble. He says, I'm less than the least of all the saints, But the Lord that we serve has given me this commission, this grace. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, if any of you know your scripture history, you would know that Paul was assigned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so if we were to ask what was his job description, many of us would say, well, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul said the same thing. But that's not the only thing he was tasked with doing. Notice it doesn't end with a period, it ends with a comma. Now we go to verse 9. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. And here's the key in verse 10. To the intent that now... The manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers. And where are these principalities and powers? In heavenly places. We're going to break down verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom, and something that's manifold is multifaceted, it's a complex thing, it's a deep thing of God. He calls it a mystery, this wisdom of God that has been hidden for ages god's big idea his big plan apparently now he wants to explain that plan or make it known and notice in the text make it known to whom to the principalities and powers and where do they live now this doesn't take too much intelligence to put it together but if they live in heavenly places we'll pray tell where does god live Doesn't he live in heaven as well? So think about it. If God wants to explain some big mystery, some big idea, the manifold wisdom of God, if he wants to make his wisdom known to people who live in heavenly realms, wouldn't the easiest way to do it would be to turn to them and explain it? I mean, they've got all the time in the world. It's not like they're going to run out of time and God's a very smart God and they're very intelligent people. If God wants them to know something and they're living in the same place, why doesn't he just turn and say, here's my plan. But according to the next, that's not how he's going to teach this lesson. And I think it's for one simple reason. Because words won't cut it. Notice how he wants to teach this wisdom. By what method? By the church. God's people on earth, he wants to use as a teaching tool for God's people in heaven to understand his plan. So when God turns to Gabriel and says, now, I want to bring some of them back here. Gabriel says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do I know they're not going to mess it all up again? And God doesn't just turn and say, trust me, don't worry about it. Remember that was the problem when they wanted, when God saw the need to kill Lucifer? God didn't just turn and say, trust me, don't worry about it. They say, well, we need to see some evidence as to why he should die. We're with you, but we don't understand. Now they've got plenty of evidence why Lucifer should die. The question isn't why should he die, but why should any of his followers live? And God could explain it and say, trust me, don't worry, it's going to be just fine all day long, but they need to see some evidence. And apparently God, in his wisdom, has chosen to demonstrate through us that we would be safe to save. Again, going back to our biggest promise in the Bible, in one of the smallest books of the Bible, Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9 page 906 in your pew Bible, Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9, the Lord asks this daunting question. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up. A what? Friends, if the Lord redeems us from this earth, will he ever have to redeem us again? No. No. then how can he pull it off? Is he going to take away our freedom of choice so that we can't choose to disobey ever again? No. By the way, if he could do that, why didn't he just do that in the first place? Saved a lot of time and a real headache, right? But that wouldn't be love. Love without choice is, well, something else besides love. By the way, in our culture, we have a very ugly word for that. what that is. When someone puts a gun to someone's head and makes them do an act of love... That's not love. What is that? It's rape. I shouldn't even have to ask that question, but does God do that? Absolutely not. He's not going to take away your power of choice and say, now love me in return. No, no, no. He says you're free to choose, but I promise you'll never choose to disobey again. How can he do it? How can he do it? Well, let's look at Scripture and see what it says. John chapter 15 and verse 5. John chapter 15 and verse 5. Jesus says, I'm sorry, verse uh, verse 4 and 5. Christ says in John chapter 15, verse 4, Abide in where? Me. By the way, it doesn't just say check in with me every now and then. It says to abide. That's an ongoing verb, right? Today and the next day and the next day and this hour and the next minute, you stay with me. You abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Let's just pause right here. If you were to make a commitment to Jesus Christ tonight and then walk out of here without his sustaining power, would you be able to keep it up? Absolutely not. You'd wither away just like a vine Separated from, the branch separated from the vine. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you do what? Abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do what? Nothing. Friends, how good would it be if God, we came to the Lord and said, Lord, I trust your pardon to clear up my record of the past and I want you to call me good. And then six seconds later, we walk away. That's not what God has in mind. Not just calling us good. He wants to actually make us good. And there's only one day to do it. To abide in him. To Stay connected with him. And he has promised to give us the strength. Colossians chapter one. The apostle Paul writing again. Colossians chapter 1 speaks of the mystery. We already talked about the mystery. Colossians chapter 1 now, page 1133 in your pew Bible, verses 26 and 27. He speaks of, quote, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, here's the big mystery thing, here's the key to making it work, which is Christ where? In you. Does it say Christ on you, the hope of glory? No. It says Christ needs to be in you. The hope of glory. Friends, if we have any hope of glory at all, we need to do more than just simply have Christ on us. Christ wants to be in us. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Ephesians, just to the left. Ephesians chapter 6. Starting with verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6. Starting with verse 10. Page 1128 in your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 6. Starting with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong, how? In the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. According to Scripture, are we able to stand on our own? Not a chance. In Christ, every time. That you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the ruse of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Christ doesn't want people who just have to be called good, he desires to be in you and make you good. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, look at this promise of victory that we find only in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes, and you can almost see the, 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 the passion in his voice, the ethos, where he, he writes, no temptation, how many temptations? None. No temptation has overtaken you except just as common to man. Whatever you're going through, and by the way, I have no doubt that everyone in this room is going through something tempting. But he said, don't think that you are being singled out and you have more to bear than anyone else. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. But God is what? Faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In our own strength, we are toast, but in Christ, we have victory. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, the apostle writes, that he who has begun a good work in you, does it say might complete it? Could complete it? Should complete it? What does it say? Will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. We've been talking about the second coming of Jesus. John 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. Notice what the apostle John, the same one who wrote the book of Revelation, says. And now, little children, what is his counsel to us? Abide where? In him. that when he appears, speaking of his second coming, which we believe we're living in that time when Christ will come again, that we may have what? Confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Friends, let me tell you something. There's going to be plenty of people who are going to be ashamed before the Lord at his coming. I, for one, don't want to be one of them. But in my own strength, that's the only thing I have to look forward to is a day of judgment where my record of sin is there and my filthiness will be seen. But Christ says there's no reason to be ashamed. There's every reason to have confidence if you come to me. And don't just come to me, stay in me. Abide in him, he says, that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Which brings us all the way back around to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. after it talks about the war in heaven and Christ's victory on the cross in verse 10, verse 11 tells us, and they, that is the brethren, that is us, overcame him by what? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. This media was brought to you by Audioverse